Grab our Bibles. Judges chapter 6 is where we'll be this morning. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 of Judges. And um, there's, there is more corn in that field than we can harvest. So we're just going to walk through and pluck a few to eat. Um, I read a whole lot of it and went 10 minutes over last service. So <laughs> I'm going to give you some summaries. We'll still read a lot of it too. Well, of all the themes in Scripture, one of the themes of top importance is what God has to say about trusting Him, trusting God. Now, the book of Judges is really a record of this maddening cycle of the people of God, the people with whom God has made a solemn promise of trustworthiness, of, of blessing, of, of goodness toward them. He's made a solemn promise of trustworthiness with them, yet they're in this cycle of trusting something else, be it other gods or just be it themselves, that they would be right in their own eyes, and trusting something else and then experiencing pain from that, choose to sin, choose to suffer. And then turning to him for help, often in the form of a judge, a leader that would step forward in the country, not a judge like wearing black robes like we're used to using the word, but a judge, a leader that God would appoint to kind of rescue the people. And then they would go right back to trusting something else besides the Lord over and over and over again. It's a sad book. It's maddening. And unfortunately, the judges themselves, these leaders, aren't really much, much different than the people at large. They're, they're very much mixed characters. They are a, kind of a microcosm of the people in that regard. Remember Samson, right? Good guy, bad guy. Well, good guy, but definitely flawed. Gideon, the judge that we'll be looking at this morning, definitely flawed. And he also bounces from trusting other things to trusting God to trusting other things to trusting God. In fact, in this, I'm helped by my friend Melvin Lutzer, who worked through a lesson in Gideon four years ago. I've been thinking about this for four years. And then another friend of mine named Trent, who was also there, uh, I heard his refinements of those things recently. And uh, I could tell he'd been thinking about this for four years, too. So a lot of that is the basis of which we'll go through this morning, but since I've been thinking about it for four years, it's not surprising that I went long. <laughs> yeah, buckle up. There it is, man, bouncing back and forth, trusting other things, trusting God, trusting other things, trusting God. That's them, not us. Hey, anybody here not able to identify with that? Okay, we're amongst friends. And here's the thing. When it comes to trusting other things, that manifests really in two different ways. Trusting other things, namely ourselves, usually results in, well, pride for one thing. That would be obvious, right? Trusting yourself, that's like the definition of pride. But it's also the circumstances of fear. When you're trusting yourself and you think you've got it, pride. When you're trusting yourself and you know you don't, fear. And that's really the bounce. Bouncing from fear to pride, to pride to fear. Stuck in fear. Long time stuck in fear. Stuck in pride. But God is calling us out of fear 
and pride and calling us to trust him. That's the way out. That's the way out of this crazy cycle of fear and pride is trust the Lord. And so the question becomes, how, with all of the human heart's tendencies to bounce like this, with all sorts of different levels of confidence from despairing fear to ridiculous pride, how do we reject both of those? And with all diligence and all self-examination, trust God. That's what we'll be looking at. So look with me at Judges chapter 6. I'm going to be starting in verse 11, but for a little context to realize the people have abandoned their trust in the Lord by and large. He said, don't be afraid of other gods, and yet they have. And in their fear, they've set up, actually, altars to other gods. And God, to call them back to himself, has put them in the hands of the Midianites. And these are basically folks who come and beat you up and take your stuff. Right? You, oh, you have got a wheat harvest. Great. We'll come in and we'll take that. Thank you for working so hard in your field for our wheat. Right? Oh, you have a milk cow. Great. Well, we'll let you keep her. As soon as I said him. It's her. It's a milk cow. And you can just, you can, we'll just show up every day and take the milk. We're just going to beat you up and take your stuff. God is using those circumstances to draw his people back to him. So often we think the circumstances are the problem. When God tells us consecration is the problem. But here's where we pick up with Gideon. Even though these people had received a solemn promise of trustworthiness from the Lord. They did not trust him. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terabith at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So he, he, he's beating out wheat. He's threshing wheat. And the way that you would do this was on a hill. You'd get up on a hilltop where it was windy, and you would toss the, the wheat up, and the wind would blow away the chaff, and then the good, the good wheat would fall back into your basket as you did that. And you beat out the wheat, and you needed to do that on a hilltop where it was windy, but that's where you could be easily seen by people who would beat you up and take your stuff. So he's in a wine press, right? So he's like in a vat, and he's hidden in there, and he's tossing... The, the, the wheat up, and the wind will blow the chaff, and then he catches the good wheat. And so now you, the Midianites can't really see him. Maybe if they're paying really close attention, they just see some wheat come up and go back down. And he's trying to stay hidden. He's a big chicken. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. God has a sense of humor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted us to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Eyes on the circumstances, right? And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Very ironic. Very sarcastic even. But then he says, do not I send you. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. Hey, we're, you have to know my family. We're losers. 
And, and I'm the least in my father's house. I'm the biggest chicken of all the losers. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, if, if, that's Gideon's favorite word, by the way. You see that right up there in verse 13 too. If the Lord is with us, if I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign. That's Gideon's second favorite word, by the way. If, 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 prove it, prove it, prove it. That it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. So Gideon goes and he gets an offering and he brings it. And the angel tells him, the messenger of the Lord tells him, set it on a rock here. And then he takes his staff and he touches the offering and fire comes up out of the rock and, and burns it up. You wanted a sign? Here's a sign. Boom. Now, doesn't that fill you with confidence? Let's pick it up in verse 22. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, the Lord God, now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. No, no confidence. Now he's just even more afraid than he was before. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. It's, that is the most frequent command in the Bible. It's an indication of where your trust is. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. To this day it stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abyssalites. He built an altar to the Lord. Finally, some consecration. Finally, a recognition and a sign that, that the Lord has made a solemn promise of trustworthiness to his people. Just trust him. And so he builds an altar, which is like a sign of recognition of the promise, right? Like a wedding ring. Right? It's not just jewelry. It's not just jewelry. It's a sign of a promise, a solemn promise. All the married people said, Amen. Amen. And so the Lord says to him, let me summarize this for you, go cut down the altars to the false gods. Cut down the altars to the false gods and build an altar to the Lord. Verse 27. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, but because... He was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day. He did it by night. Oh, boy. Here's what we see. Trust God. Don't be afraid to step into the consecration he has commanded. Take your eyes off the circumstances. They are the presenting problem. They're not the root problem. Circumstances may come. Circumstances may go. And he may use them in many different ways. What he has called you to is consecration. Holiness before him. Trust in him. Where's Gideon's trust? Well, I have a dashboard here. Gideon's trust is kind of like, uh, well, it was, he was trusting something else, right? right? And God is calling him to trust God. And he kind of gets there, doesn't he? I mean, he obeys, right? He obeys at night. Hey, don't, don't hate. Um, like, this is, this is my heart. It's mixed, isn't it? And what it shows, for one thing, is that God is patient with the fearful. God is patient with the fearful. But fear just shows us where our trust isn't. It isn't in the Lord. Fear shows us that our trust is someplace else, and that place is usually ourselves. I know it sounds a little strange to say, I'm trusting myself and I'm afraid, but it's actually pretty 
sensible that you should be afraid if your trust is in yourself. Can't do much. Gideon knew that, right? The, the, the Proverbs say, fear of man is a snare. Fear of man is a snare. You remember King Saul, right? King Saul's basic problem was that he feared the people instead of the Lord. He trusted not the Lord. How many of you know that though the Lord has called you to step out and lead out in righteousness and in spiritual responsibility, you're afraid. You're afraid to lead out like that. Maybe afraid to fight sin. I can't fight this. I've tried before. I'll just fail. I can't fight for sexual purity. It's just going to be too embarrassing. I can't fight self-indulgence. I've been doing this too long. Trusting yourself. That is a, a great way to live a life of fear. Trusting selves. Well, what happens? Gideon cuts down the altars to the false gods. And uh, townspeople are upset. Gideon's daddy comes to like his rescue and says, hey, 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 look, you're worried about Baal? Let Baal fight for himself, right? And what it does is it rallies the people, right? They have made at least one definitive step of consecration, and Gideon moves forward in what God has called him to, which is to take on those people who are beating them up and taking their stuff. That's what God has called him to. God has called you to many things. His call to you is right here. That's what we need to trust him for. We know he's said it. But here we go. Verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, if, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, what? God said it. God said it. You really don't need to start any more sentences with if. Here's what we're going to see right here. I'll give you the, the next point here. Trust God. Don't be afraid to commit to his word, his power, his plan. Don't be afraid to commit. He said it. If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor, and if there's dew on the fleece alone and is dry on the ground, then I shall know you will save Israel by my hand, even though you said it already. And it was so. And he rose early the next morning. He squeezed the fleece. He wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. God is patient with fearful people. Right? This is not good what Gideon has done. But God accommodates him. And then he says, then he says, let not your anger burn against me. He knows what he's doing is wrong. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Even though God has already said, he said it in Deuteronomy, do not test the Lord your God. Gideon knows he's putting the Lord to the test. He says, do it just the reverse. I'll put out the fleece. Instead of making it wet and the, dry, and the ground dry, this time make the ground wet and the fleece dry. And it was so. So even though God accommodated Gideon, what Gideon did was just a demonstration of where his trust was not. It, 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 reminds, it reminds you of, of serpent talk. Did God really say? Right? And so, Gideon's like, all right. Well, I guess, I guess he said it three times. And so he gets, his, he gets his guys together. And they go to fight Midian. What God says, though, verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. 
lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. What's the issue? Right? Gideon's got all these people in his army, ready to go fight, and what's the issue? God's saying, the issue isn't the circumstances. The issue isn't the fact that there are people who are beating you up and taking your stuff. I'm going to take care of that. The issue is, do you trust that it is my hand that saves you, or do you trust that it is your hand that saves you? That's the issue. Where's your trust? And I need to settle this with you, Gideon. I need to settle this with you, Israel. So, Gideon, I want you to ask anybody, if anybody's nervous about the battle. If anybody's nervous about, about the battle, they can go home. And two-thirds of them do. And there's 10,000 people left. And the Lord says to Gideon, there's still too many. This is what I want you to do. I want you to take them down to the water. I want you them all to get a drink. And, and I'm going to set them apart. And the people who lap the water like a dog, they go on one, one group. And the people who kneel down to drink, they go in another group. And there are 300 people, 300 guys, who lap the water like a dog. And he says, okay, those are them. That's who you're going to fight with. 300. Kind of out of my comfort zone, God, to go with 300 against all these people. You ever find that God is calling you out of your comfort zone? Let's go to verse 9. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, yeah, go down to the camp with Hura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and then afterwards your hand will be strengthened. So he went down with his servant, Hura, right? Am I afraid, God? Yes, I am afraid. My trust? Where's this trust? Where's this trust? Back to the dashboard, right? Where's this trust? He's, I mean, he's, God is working to get him up here. But man, it is hard to get him off of trusting something else and in fear, stuck there. The heart of fear says, what if God is calling me into something that will hurt me? The heart of fear says, what if God is commanding something that will hurt me? So he goes down. What happens is, what had happened was, he hears one of the other soldiers there in the camp saying, I dreamed that a barley loaf rolled into camp and knocked over a tent and flattened it. And his fellow soldier says, that's Gideon. God has given him this battle. And when Gideon overhears that, then he's strengthened. Right? His ears are open to other voices. His eyes are always scanning the horizon to, to find some other sign besides the plain word of the Lord to give him confidence. And so, verse 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped and returned to the camp of Israel and he said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Finally, finally, he worshipped, right? Where's his trust now, right? Am I drawing? Yeah, I'm drawing. He's trusting the Lord. He worshipped. It took a lot, didn't it? Does it take a lot for you? All right, so we're still amongst friends. Trusting the Lord. Man, it took a lot. A lot besides the plain word of God. This has happened many times. I, there's one particular time in my mind when a friend of mine had to make a decision. And it was clear from God's word what the decision needed to be. And he struggled and he said, man, if, if only God was right in front of me telling me what to do. You, you don't need another word. Your issue is not another word. Your issue is not another sign. Your issue is... Your trust isn't in the Lord. You're afraid because you don't trust what he said. How, how many of you know that you have been confronted by God's 
word, and yet you've been afraid to commit to obedience. Really, it's like, I'll pray about it. Pray about it. He has said. Pray about courage in it. Pray about wisdom for it. But don't pray about it. Do not give in to serpent talk with like, did God really say? You know that God has called you to generosity. Pray about courage in it. Pray about wisdom for it. Do not be afraid to commit to God's word and God's power and God's plan. You know that God has called you to hospitality. Yeah, pray about courage for it. Pray about wisdom in it. But don't be afraid to commit to it. You can see in God's plain word that he has called you to a compassionate solidarity with those people who are different from you. They see the world different than you. They look different than you. Their life experience is different from you. And it is outside of your comfort zone to start listening to anybody who thinks different than you, but God has called you to it. Pray for courage in it. Pray for wisdom for it. But you don't need another sign to get people who are different than you around your dinner table. It's a gospel issue. Where's your trust? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to listen to those who are different than you in the body of Christ. So then, we go on. What happens next? Very next verse, verse 16. Here's what we'll see. That pride can corrupt even the act of obeying. Pride can corrupt even the act of obeying. Remember that? Trusting other things can look like fear. It sure can look like pride. So Gideon was there trusting God for like a moment. He divides his men. He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take a jar in one hand. I'm going to put a torch in there. And I want you to put a trumpet in the other hand. And all three of us are going to divide up and we're going to go around the camp. And then do what I do. Verse 18. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord. And for Gideon, how did you get in there? <laughs> oh, if the heart of fear is, what if God is calling me into something that will hurt me? The heart of pride is, if I can trust myself in all of this, then I can get some glory. I can have some control. I can avoid some pain. If I can just trust myself in this, that God is calling me. And even in the act of obeying, pride can corrupt. Your trust, your trust can waver. And that's what they did. They all went around the camp. And right at the right moment, they broke their jars and the torches shone and they blew their trumpets and they yelled, A sword for the Lord! And for Gideon. And it worked. They, just, they didn't even have swords, right? Like torches, trumpets. They didn't even plan to fight. And, and the Lord took care of the deal. All the people in the camp, they started killing each other. They fought one another. And Gideon's forces just stood by. Even in Gideon's obedience, trust started to shift, didn't it? Where's Gideon's trust? Get the dashboard up. Right? He was trusting God. He worshipped. Pride started pulling him over here. Right? Is that up there? John Calvin says, we can never truly glory in God until we have utterly discarded our own glory. Do you recognize that temptation in yourself? To do the right thing to the glory of God and me. Right? If what you do is anonymous, does that demotivate you? That's worth attention. 
Like if you imagine your small group coming around a meth addict and seeing that life turn around and that person's life comes to the Lord and they, and they, and, and they recover and it's a beautiful God at work story and you were there investing time and prayer and friendship, you're excited about that. I'm excited about that. What if it's somebody else's small group? What if you didn't have anything to do with it? A little less excited? Some other musician is used by the Lord to draw people to genuine worship. Some other discipleship influence sees your child brought to maturity in Christ, but not you, but somebody else. You say, hallelujah, for the Lord, or for the Lord and me. Some other church, some other healthy biblical church at some other place in town, they are the ones who start seeing lost people saved and saved people matured and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. And do we say, hooray for the Lord? Or do we say, oh, that's cool. We sure would be like, like, to, like it to be happening over here where we could say, hooray for the Lord and me. It's right to desire fruit. It's right to desire even rewards from God. Worth asking if mixed in there is also a desire that shouts for the Lord and me. Well, what happens? Well, we see what happens. The plan works. And they capture the Midianites. And capture their leaders. And then, after all of this, go to verse 22. Here's where Gideon's tendency just keeps on going. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Wasn't that the whole issue? Whose hand does the saving? And Gideon says to them, he doesn't say, it was not I, it was the Lord, but he says, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Well, that's the right thing. That's the right thing to say. Who, who thinks that's the right thing to say? Yeah, it's not a trick question. You can raise one. But here's the thing. Those are just words. It's a slogan. He knows that's what he's supposed to say. Point number four up here is don't settle for religious words. Examine the heart of trust. Examine the heart of trust. We can all say religious words. Here's how it goes on with Gideon. I won't rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. I'm not your king. You can't set me up and, and then set up this dynasty. Like, that's what kings do. And Gideon said to them, But let me make a request of every one of you. Give me the earrings from your spoil. For they had golden earrings for they were Ishmaelites. And they said, We'll willingly give them. Hey, look, I'm not going to be your king, but I'm going to tax you. And the earrings, they equaled 1,700 shekels of gold, over 40 pounds of gold. I'm not going to be your king, but I'm going to tax you, and I'm going to amass a treasury. And not only that, but he also had the royal ornaments from the enemies. He kept those for himself. It says in verse um, 26, right? Beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. And then from the gold, Gideon made an ephod and put it in his city. An ephod, is, is that, those are priestly garments, right? So not only is he acting like a king, He's also, he's brought and made an ephod, and he puts it in his city, and the, the text says, and all of Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. He's acting like a king. He's acting like a priest. He's completely unauthorized to do either one, even though he said, hey, it's all about the Lord. I won't rule over you. 
God will rule over you. But really, yeah, me. Don't settle for, for religious words. Examine the heart of trust. The very last verse we'll look at is verse 31 because it just underscores the whole point. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech, which means my daddy is king. And who named him? Gideon. Don't settle for religious words. Examine the heart of trust. The heart of pride says, if I can just trust myself in all of this, if I can just trust myself in all of this, then I can control it, then I can avoid pain, then I can get some glory. The heart of fear says, what if God is calling me into something that, that will hurt me? And in either case, the heart of trust is not in God. It's in yourself. And we might settle for religious words. We might say the right thing. But that's what we need to look for. That's what we need to look for in our actions. That's what we need to look for in our anxieties. That's what we need to look for even in our anger. Oftentimes, where our trust is shows up in our anger. But the real location of our trust is about way more than slogans. And the only way to stop bouncing back and forth from fear to pride, back to fear, stuck in fear, stuck in pride, is for our hearts to be truly stilled by that solemn promise of God's trustworthiness to us, His heart of favor and blessing to us. His promise that says, I am yours and yours is mine. That's the answer to the whole bouncing flip-flop. It's the gospel. If I am trusting the solemn promise that Christ died for my sins, then I don't have to ask if God is for me, if God has given you his favor, if God has called you in his own commission for his own purposes and set his trustworthy, solemn promise on you. There's no more if. And I don't need any more signs except for this one. How about this one right here? Yeah. If, if, if. Prove it, prove it, prove it. Show me a sign. That's the sign I need. That's the sign I need. That's the only sign I need. Because the cross shows me there's no need to ask if God is sending me into something that's going to hurt me. I don't have to ask, is God commanding something that's going to hurt me? Because He's already sent Christ into everything that could ever truly hurt me. All of the shame, all of the judgment, all of the wrath that's already been taken. I can move forward in complete confidence. Why? Because it's going to be easy? No. But because Christ has already conquered everything that could possibly truly, really, spiritually harm me. It's done. I do not need to fear. I can trust God. But certainly that sign of the cross shows that there is no room for pride. There is no reason for me to trust myself in pride. I can trust God. He, rejecting pride is just, just, just natural. When you look at the cross and you realize, look at those wounds. That's what it took. I contributed nothing. The only thing I contributed to the cross were sins that needed to be forgiven. That's it. And he died in my place to the glory of his grace, to the praise of his name. That's the answer. That's how we stop the flipping and the flopping from fear to 
pride and pride to fear is we trust God. How? By what sign? Cross. That's how we know what he said. We'll stand and pray. Lord God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you are patient with fearful people. You've even been patient with prideful people.